Well, the uh, Christmas season began officially for me this week. Um, not because the decorations are up in the stores now, because that was happening in October. Not because uh, I put on Christmas music. I did that in September. Uh, but because I got that email from Krista this week that said, what do you want for Christmas? We don't do a ton uh, for Christmas with each other. We spend basically our Christmas, the money we set aside for Christmas, we usually spend on experiences and stuff. We usually get each other something small just to get the kids involved in picking out and wrapping and, you know, giving gifts to mommy and daddy and so on. So we sent me this email. I said, what do you want for Christmas? And I read the email and I had the same reaction I had every single year, which is, I don't know what I want for Christmas. I don't know what I want for Christmas. Uh... We watch Netflix, and so um, I don't have cable, I don't have satellite, I haven't seen a television commercial in over two years, uh, nobody's telling me what to want anymore, so I have no idea what to want for Christmas. And then the next question is, well, what do you need for Christmas? I don't know what I need for Christmas, I don't. I don't go through my day or my week or my month, I don't even go through a year thinking, oh, if only I had object X, my life would somehow be better. I don't feel that need at any time, really, during the year. So I, I don't know. I'm so useless. She hates it because I never know how to answer that question. And so I usually end up saying something cool and electronic. That's basically the, those are my parameters. Because I don't know, because those are the questions, right? Those are the categories. What do you want for Christmas? What do you need for Christmas? My parents when I was growing up we had ways of dealing with those two categories of things uniquely at Christmas time when we were growing up the what do you want stuff that was wrapped in nice paper in a box it was under the tree and you opened it up when the whole family was sitting around and we were celebrating Christmas together as a family because everyone wanted to see a reaction when you open what you want for Christmas the what do you need stuff that was hung in a stocking by the fireplace, you can open that on your own anytime after midnight on December 25th. Nobody really needed to see you open the what do you need stuff because everybody knew you just you weren't going to get all that excited to open socks and underwear and undershirts and pencils and batteries. It's not, not exciting. It's not the stuff you want, but it's the stuff you need. It's the stuff that's going to get you through the next six months of school, right? The what do you want and the what do you need, and those things are very different. Even when it comes to a life of faith, that's what I was thinking about this week, about how the what do you want stuff and the what do you need stuff can be very different even when it comes uh, to a life of faith. If you have a Bible with you or a, a device of some kind, open up to Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, because we're going through this series that we've called All In, where we're exploring a series of miracle stories that are being told about the life of of Jesus. This series is, at least in part, it's about two things. And one of the things that this series is about is this series is about Matthew illustrating the power and authority of Jesus. You could probably say it with me if you've been here in this series. To bring healing and hope and restoration to the brokenness, darkness, sickness, pain, chaos, and death of our lives and our world. That's what Jesus is all about in this passage, in this section of the text. And so we've watched Jesus cleanse lepers of their leprosy. We've watched Jesus cure kids with 
who are paralyzed by chronic pain. We've watched Jesus rescue a woman who had been wasting away under this severe infection. We've heard a story about Jesus controlling the forces of nature, calming a storm at sea. We've watched Jesus control the forces of evil as he calms the spirits of two men who were demoniacs, who were, whose lives were under the influence of demons. And we turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, and we see that same familiar scenario playing itself out in front of Jesus again. It says in verse 1, it says, Jesus stepped into a boat. Here's that boat again. Jesus stepped into a boat. Remember, he had just been kicked out of the region of the Gadarenes, and he stepped into a boat, and he crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and he came to his own town, which was Capernaum. And some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. Jesus gets out of the boat and he's in the town of Capernaum where he lives. And these men, hearing the rumor that Jesus was back in town, load up their buddy on a stretcher and they each grab a corner and they carry him across town to lay him in front of Jesus. Because they've heard the stories about Jesus. They know that Jesus cures the leper. They know that Jesus has healed the kid with chronic pain. They know that Jesus casts demons out of people. They know, as Matthew said in Matthew 8, they know that Jesus heals all the sick that are brought to him. And so they load up their buddy on the stretcher and they bring him before Jesus and they lay him in front of Jesus and look up expectingly in Jesus' eyes. And it says in verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith, when they saw that they believed in him, when they saw that they, that they trusted him with the life of their friend, he saw their faith and he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? Your sins are forgiven. That's not why they came. I read this story and I started to think this week, I wonder how these guys feel at exactly that moment. Like they've loaded up their buddy and dragged him across town. If you read this story in some of the other gospels, it tells you about the amount of effort that they went to. It says Jesus was teaching in a house and there was no room in the house. So they carried their paralyzed buddy and his mat up to the roof, ripped a hole in the roof and lowered him down in front of Jesus. Matthew doesn't tell us any of those stories because Matthew doesn't want our focus to be on anybody other than Jesus himself. But these guys have gone through some effort to bring their buddy to Jesus because they've heard that Jesus heals everyone who is sick that gets brought to him and they bring their buddy to him and put him in front of Jesus and he sees their faith and he's moved and he addresses this man with the compassion of a father towards a child and he says, take heart, be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven. Next. And I'm thinking that if I'm one of these guys, I'm ticked. Because that's not why we came. It's awfully nice of you to do, Jesus. Thank you very much for forgiving my friend's sins. Now, can you please heal him of his paralysis? Because that's why we came. This guy's got a spinal cord injury, can't walk. That's why we came. We're tired of carrying our friend around throughout life, everywhere we go. That's why we came. And Jesus, in this story, reminds us 
of his real priorities. About the stuff that matters most to Jesus. Yeah, God sent Jesus into the world to do a work of healing, to bring healing to your broken bodies, to send Jesus in the world just to bring hope to the to the, the ways that are, we get hopeless and, and despairing in our minds and in our emotions. He sent Jesus into the world to speak calm into the chaos, to speak peace into the darkness that swirls around us, to bring restoration to our relationships with ourselves and each other and the world. And, and yet Jesus came first and foremost to bring restoration to our relationship to God to speak peace and healing into our soul. To speak a word of forgiveness over our sin and to reconnect our lives back into relationship with God. That's why, more than anything else, that's why Jesus came. To speak a word of forgiveness over every unloving, non-loving, anti-loving, sinful choice that we've ever made with our thoughts or our words or with our deeds. He came to speak a word of forgiveness over every single unloving thing we've ever done to somebody else. And over every single loving thing that we've left undone to somebody else. He came to speak a word of forgiveness over all of the ways in which we've chosen to love and care about anything, everything, something more than we care about God. And the ways that we've chosen to live our lives loving ourselves rather than loving other people as much as we love ourselves. Jesus came came to speak a word of forgiveness over the sin of our lives, to speak a word of healing into our souls. That, according to Jesus, is the most basic, fundamental need that we all share. And my question as I read this story is that if I were that guy, those friends, would I be disappointed if that's all I got from Jesus. Would you be disappointed if Jesus decided to not cure your cancer or lift your depression? Would you be disappointed if Jesus never got you a job, never found you a spouse, never gave you a child, never lifted you out of poverty, never dealt with your addiction? Would you be disappointed if Jesus didn't do any of the things you're asking for right now? If all he did was speak a word of forgiveness over your sin to bring healing to your soul, would that be disappointing? To you. you know, Jesus went to the cross and all I got was this lousy forgiveness. Would you be jealous of your friends for whom Jesus did more? Would you be angry at God for not answering your other prayers? Because friends, this, as I thought about it, this is a litmus test of our love for God. See, if we're loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, if we're loving God with all that we are and all that we have as the single and highest priority in our life, if that is true of us, then honestly, we would rather be a single, depressed, jobless, childless, um, cancer patient who lives in a relationship with God than to be a healthy, wealthy, happily married family person who's living apart from him. That's just real. 
I think Matthew tells this story to remind us of what matters most to Christ. That the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. And the main thing that Jesus wants to do in your life is to speak a word of forgiveness over your sin to bring healing to your soul, to reconnect your life to God. And Matthew tells this story to remind us that Jesus has the power and authority to bring that kind of healing and freedom from your guilt and shame and to reconnect your life with God. And honestly, that was exactly the thing that the religious crowd didn't believe that Jesus was able to do in people's lives. In verse 3, it says this, it's, at this, some of the teachers of the law, the scholars of the scriptures, they said to themselves, this guy's blaspheming. He can't say that, your sins are forgiven. God's told us how to get our sins forgiven. You have to go through the process. You go down to the temple and you talk to the sanctified, ordained, authorized representative of God on earth who's the priest and you make arrangements to bring your animal to the altar as a guilt offering or a sin offering and the priest will sacrifice your animal on the altar while you confess your sins to God and in that moment, God, who is the only one who can forgive you, God will forgive your sins. That's how it's done. You go to the right place at the right time and you perform the right ritual at the right words in the right ways authorized by the right people. You go through the right religious rigmarole and if you do it just right, God will forgive your sins. This guy's blaspheming. Because first of all, he's saying you don't have to go through the whole religious rigmarole in order to get forgiveness. And he's saying that he's that he stands in the place of God, that he's authorized to extend forgiveness to your life. And he can't say that. And it says in verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Jesus says, let me, let me ask you, riddle me this, Batman. It says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, the answer's obvious, right? Your sins are forgiven is the easier thing to say. Why is that easier? It's easier because nobody can verify whether or deny whether or not it's happened. You can't prove whether or not somebody's sins are forgiven just because somebody says your sins are forgiven. There's no way to verify that this paralyzed man had no idea whether or not his sins were really forgiven. You can't prove it. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. I can say it. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Well, maybe not you, but everybody else. Your sins are forgiven. Yeah. How do you know? How do you know? The harder thing is to say get up, get up and walk. Because when you say get up and walk, everybody's going to know whether or not you have the power and authority to do it. And so Jesus says to them, listen, because I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man, maybe for the first time in his life, got up and he rolled up his mat and he went back to his house. Jesus says, just so that you know, I'll do the harder thing to prove that I can do the easier thing. I'll do the get up and walk thing and you'll see that it happens so that everybody knows that when I did the your sins are forgiven thing, that it happened. 
And it says that when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to a man. That's the point of the story. Jesus has, in the same way that he has the power and authority to cleanse a leper and to cure a kid with chronic pain and to heal a woman of this severe infection that is crippling her life, in the same way that he has the power and authority to calm the storm, in the same way that he has the power and authority to calm your spirit from the grip of evil, he has the power and authority to speak a word of forgiveness in your life, to speak healing into your soul, to reconnect your life to God and to set you free from the guilt and the shame that you've been carrying from the way that you've been living. And there's some people who need to hear the good news this morning that with the word of forgiveness from Jesus, he can set you free. Because there are people here this morning who need to come. You've never come to Jesus and said, would you please Would you please take this guilt and shame and pour forgiveness into my soul and rescue me from my own past? And he's inviting you to do that this morning, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. In fact, the reason Matthew's telling us this story is that Matthew himself knows the power of Jesus to forgive. In verse 9, it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, the guy who wrote this book, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Matthew, the guy who wrote this biography of Jesus, was a tax collector. Realistically, literally, he was a toll collector. His job was to sit in a toll booth between the port on the Sea of Galilee, along the main road that connected the port to the town of Capernaum, and to collect toll and customs and duty from every person who passed by that way. And that job made Matthew one of the most infamous and notorious sinners in the entire town of Capernaum. He was considered to be a notorious sinner because he was perpetually religiously unclean, 24-7, all day, every day. He was spiritually unclean. In other words, the Jews considered him to be unfit for the presence of God because he spent all day, every day doing business with Gentiles who were unclean. And contact with Gentiles made you unclean, which meant you were unfit for the presence of God. But it wasn't just doing business with the Gentiles, it was handling their money. See, Roman tolls were paid in Roman coin, and Roman coin had a picture of the Roman emperor, and the Roman emperor was considered to be a god, which made the coin a graven image. It made it an idol. The Jews were forbidden from handling the idolatrous money of the Romans. And here was Matthew, day after day, doing business with unclean people, handling their idolatrous money. This man was spiritually unfit for the presence of God. God wanted nothing to do with this man. He was considered a notorious sinner not just because of that, but because the whole business was corrupt and Matthew was corrupt as a part of the business. Toll collectors were greedy and self-serving. They were parasites On the society. See, the way you get this job is that you're a contractor and you apply to King Herod Agrippa, the local king, for the right to collect the tolls. Right? And and the way you get the job is by promising King Herod Agrippa more money at the end of the year than all the other people who are bidding on the contract. And if you promise the most money, Herod Agrippa is going to give you the job because he wants the most money, at least in part because he owes money to the Roman emperor at the end of the year. 
And so Matthew says, I can get you this much money by collecting tolls. And so he sits there all day, every day, trying to collect enough money to to fulfill his contract to Herod Agrippa. Now here's the thing. You don't get a salary for paying this job, doing this job. The way you get paid as a toll collector is that whatever you collect over and above the tolls that people owe, you get to keep. That's your salary. The whole system was built for corruption. Where toll collectors sitting in these booths get rich by exploiting the poor, by overcharging toll day after day after day. I mean, imagine pulling up to the border. What is it now? 350, 325, something like that. You pull into the booth and the guy says to you, welcome to Canada, $56, please. And you know, you know that the other $52.75 are going straight into this guy's pocket. And you can't go anywhere until you pay the toll. It was a corrupt, dirty business that exploited the poor, that made the rich rich on the backs of the poor. That's why he was a notorious sinner. And not only that, he was a traitor. He's collecting money to give to Herod Agrippa, who's going to send it off to Caesar in Rome, who's going to use it to pay the troops that are occupying the Holy Land and oppressing the Jews. Matthew's raising money that's going to pay the soldiers to oppress God's people. He's Benedict Arnold. He's working for the other side. And not just working against his own people. He's working against God's people. He's working for God's enemy, which means that he is working against God. He is a traitor of the highest order. A toll collector was the most notorious infamous sinner in the town in which they served and that's who Matthew was prior to meeting Jesus and it says at the end of verse 9 that Jesus saw him sitting at the tax collector's booth and he looked at him and he says follow me and Matthew got up and followed him Matthew says, this is the reason I can tell you that Jesus has the power and authority to speak a word of forgiveness and freedom into your life because he did it for me. There's no way that you're a bigger sinner than I was. He did it to me. He looked at me in the eye and he said, I want you to follow me. And Matthew got up from the table and he followed Jesus. I'm amazed. I I thought for a little bit, why would Matthew tell his story right here? I mean, this whole passage of scripture is about Jesus' power to bring healing and hope, right? All these miracle stories of the way Jesus is miraculously intervening in people's lives. And right in the middle of it is the story of Jesus saying, follow me. And Matthew gets up to the table and follows him and suddenly it strikes me the reason Matthew tells the story right at this point in the book is because he believes at that moment Jesus did a miracle in turning his life around and in fact you can see it right in the story because it doesn't Jesus says follow me and it doesn't say Matthew followed him it says Matthew got up and followed him why does that matter that Matthew got up and followed him in the word the Greek is arose which is a word that can mean to stand up but it's also the word that Matthew uses in the whole New Testament uses to mean resurrection Matthew is saying there I was sitting at my booth dead in my sin dead in my soul 
dead in my spirit, dead in my life. And Jesus came and called me and performed this miracle in my soul. And I got up and I left that life behind and I followed him and I was resurrected that day. That was the day I came to life. That was the day I was fully alive. I walked away from the deadness of my past and I entered into a life with Jesus. And your life can be raised from the dead too. And Matthew's so stoked about what Jesus does in his life, he throws a party in verse 9, uh, or verse 10, it says, and while he was, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Matthew invites Jesus over to his palatial spread, his massive house that he earned by being a toll collector, and he invites all of his other toll collector buddies and the other sinners in town, the other folks that nobody else wanted anything to do with, and they all come and they have dinner with Jesus, and the religious crowd sees this, and they ask the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he recline, the text says, with tax collectors and sinners? See, when you eat, In a Jewish household, you eat sitting at a table, but when you throw a party, when you invite the neighbors for a feast, you recline at a table that's about 18 inches off the ground and you lie on the floor and lean on your elbow and eat with your other hand and you're lying on the floor and there's somebody lying right in front of you here and there's somebody lying right behind you there and you're packed like sardines all the way around the table which is why people with personal space issues don't go reclining at people's houses. (laughs) It's why when you throw a party you only invite your friends. Because to eat together in this way was so close and so intimate that it spoke of love and acceptance and togetherness and trust. When you ate with people in this way, reclined around the table, what you were saying is, I trust and love these people enough to eat this way with them. These are my people. These are my people, these tax collectors and sinners, these notorious, infamous uh, (laughs) sinners, Jesus says. These are my people. And the Pharisees, the religious crowd, they're horrified. They're horrified. In fact, the word Pharisee literally means the separated ones. They prided themselves. Their whole spiritual life was built on their commitment to keep themselves separated from exactly this kind of person. Their whole spiritual life was designed to keep their lives squeaky clean by avoiding getting sucked into the messiness of the lives of criminals and deviants and perverts like that crowd. The whole point was to be separated. That's how you stay pleasing to God, by not getting all caught up in the sinfulness of that crowd. And they look at Jesus mixing it up with people whose lives were beyond description in terms of sinfulness and they can't believe it how dare this rabbi how dare this spiritual role model mix it up with that kind of crowd and in verse 12 it says on hearing this Jesus said to them I'll tell you why because it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, says, I'll tell you why. Who needs a doctor? 
Healthy people? No. Sick people. That's why I do what I do. I go and I heal the leper and cure the kid with chronic pain and heal the woman of her, um, of her infection and, and allow the paralytic to walk and cast the demons out of those guys in the tombs. The whole reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because it's sick people who need a doctor. It's sick people who need to be made well. It is sinful people who need to be reconnected into life to God. He says to them, you guys need to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's a bit of tongue-in-cheek sarcasm from Jesus. I love it. It's holy, sanctified sarcasm from the mouth of our Lord. He says to them, you got to go and learn. See, that's what the Pharisees would say to their disciples whenever their thinking was getting off track. They'd look at a disciple and say, listen, you got to go and learn what this passage means. And then they'd quote a passage out of the Old Testament. And the whole point was, you got to go study this passage because if you were to understand that passage the right way, you would never be choosing to live or think the way you're living and thinking. And Jesus turns and looks at them and says, fellas, it's your turn to go and learn. Why don't you start with Hosea 6 verse 6 where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What Jesus is saying to them is your life is all about sacrifice. Your life is all about religiosity. Your life is all about Perfect religious performance, scrupulous adherence to the law. Your life, your whole commitment before God is about keeping your life squeaky clean in every imaginable way because you think that that's what matters most to God. And God does care about holiness. He says over and over again, be holy as I am holy. God cares about holiness, but Jesus is saying there's something God cares about more than you keeping your life squeaky clean. God cares about mercy more than sacrifice. What God wants from you more than you separating yourself from sinful people in order to keep your life squeaky clean. What God wants more is for you in mercy and compassion and generosity to be willing to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty in the messiness of real people's messed up lives in order to love them back into relationship with Jesus Christ. What I want more than your squeaky clean holiness that's leading you to be judgmental towards all these people is I want you to be merciful towards these people so that they can avoid the judgment of God. Jesus says I want mercy more than I want sacrifice. I want you to be willing to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty in the messiness of these real people's messed up lives in order to love them back, in order to open your arms in the embrace of forgiveness to love them back into a relationship with God. And I'm telling you, friends, there are people in our community this morning who need to hear Jesus say, it's time for you to stop living a separated life of perfect legalistic holiness, of trying to keep yourself religiously squeaky clean before God. And it's time for you to roll up your sleeves and to stop judging people that you deem to be sinful and get involved in loving those folks back into relationship with God because the church for a long time has specialized in judgment. 
We've condemned without a trial those that we believe to be sinners, whether the gays or the Muslims or the homeless. We judge the homeless for being homeless, blame the poor for being poor. We judge addicts, we judge AIDS victims, we judge divorcees, we judge single parents, we judge them for being sinful folks, and we try to avoid all contact with them at any cost in order to keep our lives squeaky clean. And Jesus says what God wants more than that is for you in mercy and compassion and generosity and love, for you to get involved in those the messiness of their lives in order to love people into relationship with Jesus. That's what this text is about. About the invitation of Jesus to experience forgiveness. No matter whether the kind of forgiveness we need is the forgiveness for the ways in which we've rebelled against God. You know, forgiveness for a rebellion or forgiveness for our religion. Because Jesus has the power and authority to speak a word of forgiveness over your sin. Rebellious or religious. And to bring healing to your soul. I want the band to come back to the stage because we're going to sit in a moment of forgiveness. I want everybody to close their eyes and to be in their own space before God. And I am going to give you an opportunity in just a minute to pray. Just in the quietness of your heart, you and God, you're going to do business with God. You're going to confess to God the ways in which you need him to speak a word of forgiveness in your life the ways in which you need him to set you free from the guilt and shame of the sin that you've been living, whether rebellious sin or religious sin. There's some people here this morning who have never come to Jesus, who have never brought their, the sinfulness to Jesus, who have never brought uh, the, the junk in their lives and asked Jesus to forgive them and set them free from the guilt and shame that you carry every single day. And this is your moment, this is your time. The moments that come, come to Jesus, offer it all up to him. Say, Jesus, I confess that I have not been the kind of person you want me to be. I haven't even been the kind of person that I want to be. Would you forgive me and set me free? There are some people here this morning who need to confess that you've been unwilling to do what Matthew did and to get up from the table and to walk away from your past life. There are things you know that you're doing in your life right now and you have been unwilling to give them up and those things are keeping you from being able to fully follow Jesus Christ. And I want you to sit in the quiet before God this morning and I want you to confess, Jesus, this I've been hanging on to this sin and I am ready to let it go. Would you speak a word of forgiveness and freedom so that I can walk away from my past and experience the resurrection of new life of what it means to live in a relationship with you. There are some folks here this morning who what you need to confess is that you've cared more 
about God bringing healing to your body and healing to your mind and bringing hope to your emotions. And you've, you've wanted God to get you a job or find you a spouse or give you a kid or free you from your addiction. You've wanted God to do those things more than you've cared about his forgiveness in your life. And this is a moment for you in the quietness to say, I am sorry. I'm sorry for caring about anything, something, everything more than I care about you, God. There's some of you here this morning who need to come before God in the quietness of this moment and say, God, I confess that I have been a judgmental jerk. That I have judged people that I have deemed to be sinful. I've looked down my nose at people who are being victimized by evil. And I have avoided being in contact with them because I wanted nothing to do with them. And I am sorry for being a person of judgment rather than mercy. There are some of you who need to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, there are people in my life. And I've been avoiding getting involved in the messiness of their lives. And there are people, I'm sorry, that I've been slow to love people right where they're at, back into a relationship with you. Would you take this? Speak a word of forgiveness. Speak a word of healing into my soul, of freedom, and set me free from the person that I have been. So that like Matthew, I can stand up from the life I've been living and walk away to follow you to experience the resurrection and the new life of what it means to fully follow Jesus. These are your moments. Come to God in prayer and confess the things that you need him to speak a word of forgiveness into.